today I'd like to welcome Jenna Close of Buck the Cubicle to the podcast. Jenna and her collaborator John's career has evolved along with the changing business of image making and storytelling. They have always approached their work with grace, a sense of humor, a deep respect for the client, their craft, and the final outcome. In a nutshell, Buck the Cubicle synthesizes authentic storytelling with purpose-driven brands, which we'll discuss in a minute. Jenna, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thomas. My Good pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started the company, you made an early move into environmental and socially conscious companies specializing in clean energy, predominantly solar. What drove that move? It was at a time when not a lot of people were really focusing on that. Yeah, so what happened is I graduated from photo school, I think it was 2007. So it was right when the economy had that big downturn. And one of my teachers said, you know, look, you want to be a corporate industrial photographer, but you need to specialize more than that. Like times are really hard right now. So how are you going to set yourself apart from all the other people who are doing this? And I've always been a big proponent of alternative energy and stuff like that. So I thought that sounds interesting. And then I started researching and looking at these guys' websites and I noticed that there were not a lot of really good photographs on there. So I thought that there was a lot of room for improvement from that perspective. And we were planning on moving to San Diego, which is where John's from. So the added benefit was that there were a lot of local companies doing solar down here. So when we were just starting out, we could, you know, kind of approach the local companies first and grow from there, which is exactly what we did. We had originally planned to do broad alternative energy. That was going to be kind of our niche, but it really actually ended up being 99% solar. So for a number of years, that's all we shot was large-scale industrial solar all around the country, basically. And what kept it in the solar realm? Why were other forms of alternative energy less productive? Well, first of all, we were very new business. We were young and green, so we didn't have the breadth of portfolio we felt to go after bigger agencies and a lot of the wind companies at that point had already gotten very large and were using agencies or they were owned by other companies that were large. So they were more agency driven and we were much more business to business driven. Secondly, it was location. We were in a place where there was a whole lot of solar going on, both along the coast of Southern California, but actually also to the east inland in the deserts, a lot of really big solar installations going on there. Uh, so that's just, we just never really got our foot into the, the wind market, which was fine. So we were doing solar. We did some electric vehicle work and some interesting stuff like that. But it really just kind of happened that way. And then we ended up just becoming people who were known for that. So we just kept doing it. And you owned the niche for a while. We owned it for a while, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it helped you move into industrial and corporate and other jobs around the country to give you validation? Yeah, basically... We would work for a company and then they would know us and maybe we had shot some of their solar installations, but then they needed someone to do their corporate headshots and maybe they needed someone to do an event. We used to do events now and then for clients. And so it just kind of branched out from there as we started building those portfolios of corporate headshots and into other industrial stuff. Then we started getting more clients on our own that weren't solar based, but all of the original growth really came mostly through our original solar clients. It's nice because I think a lot of people image makers, creators imagine that the only way you can get ad work or that kind of corporate work is through an agency. And if you take the time and spend the energy and do your research, you really can do direct, right? Client direct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we still even today are primarily client direct. And I think what also really helped us launch very quickly into 
a sustainable career in the beginning was that we decided to do some alternative marketing. So instead of just doing the emailers and the promo cards, we decided to go to a solar power trade show that they had. And it happened the year that we found it. It happened to be in LA. It was expensive as far as our marketing budget. We didn't have a lot of money at the time, but it was made possible because we could drive there. We didn't have to do hotels and stuff like that. So we went to this thing. It's like a four-day thing. The only photographers there, we actually rented a booth for a couple of years. And then we decided not to do that after a while. And once we got better at our elevator speech and stuff, we just walked around and met people. But in the beginning, we had a booth and tons of people stopped because they were like, most people were just asking, like, what are you guys doing here? You know? And so yeah, you just see these photographers in the middle of this solar solar power trade show, but we got a lot of clients that way. So that was kind of this one-stop shop thing that we stumbled on. It was our biggest form of marketing and our biggest financial output, but it was totally successful that way. So we just embraced the business to business like a hundred percent. And the agencies came later. I mean, I really think I tried to market to agencies in the beginning, even if the work was good enough, I honestly feel like we weren't ready to take on those larger jobs at that point. We wouldn't have been comfortable with it. So it was a nice progression and it just happened naturally. And I love that you marketed yourself in a way that I don't think anybody else, at least in terms of photography, really does, unless you're a wedding photographer or something. People don't yeah. really go to conferences and imagine engaging the client directly. Yeah. I mean, that's what I always tell people is like, <clears throat> and I'm still always looking for these conferences, whether it's a trade show or a meetup group, or it's like your local ad club, whatever it is, the, the face-to-face networking has always been thousands of times more potent for us than sending the emailers and stuff. I feel like that's sort of a reminder thing. But if you can meet these people in a situation where you actually get to have a conversation or they meet you face to face, or maybe you go out for drinks and then they really never forget you. So that's been extremely successful for us. That's great. And you were successful there, but you kept evolving. You were one of the early adapters of drones. You're one of the first people to run a drone in your business in SoCal. Yeah. So what happened was... John, uh, my partner, who's the very aptly named creative engineer of our group, he's also a pilot. What happened was we were shooting a lot of these really large-scale industrial solar arrays way out in the desert. So they're miles and miles and miles. And from the ground, you could never tell the scale of the thing. Like, you couldn't really capture it correctly. And from a full-size plane or helicopter, you missed some dramatic element. Like, you could see how big it was, but it was sort of a little bit removed. So he kept saying to me, you know, we really need to be like 200 or 300 feet off the ground, like a little higher than a pole, but I'm not as high as a regular plane. He's like, yeah, we should try to fly a drone. So he ended up finding a a hobbyist like RC flyer club right nearby. And he just went there and he told them what he wanted to do. And he wanted to learn how to fly. And this was before nothing was automated. Your plane didn't come home when you, you lost it. It just crashed somewhere. You know, you could never take your eyes off the control. It was a very different time for drones. So this older fellow just really liked him and mentored him. And he gave him a canvas bag full of parts. And he said, if you can assemble this into the helicopter it's supposed to be, you can have it. And John spent about a week in our living room, like, putting this thing together. And there was a little helicopter. So first we put a little tiny point and shoot on it because there was no way we were going to put our one good camera up. He practiced for a year. First on a computer simulator, then on a small helicopter, and then on the big one, because it's, it just there's no automatic flying on those things. So I'll never forget the time when we got our big one. And it doesn't look like the drones you have now. It looks like an actual helicopter shrunken down in size. It did. And when you say big, how big is big? I don't know. What is that? Four feet, maybe? Okay. 
I don't know if you can see. I'm really bad at guessing the length, but yeah, big. Like the blades on that thing would, if they, if it crashed into your neck, it would kill you. Okay. There it was very big because it had to lift. We ended up putting our Canon 5D, whatever it was, on it, which at the time, because we were just starting out, was our only camera. <laughs> no backup. <laughs> and I will never forget the first time we put that thing on there and took it up. We bought parts from everywhere. We found a gimbal. And he made it work. And so for about three years, we were we were very talked about for that. Clients would actually come out to see the drone. The art director or the, or the CEO would come out and film us with the drone because it was not a common thing. So that really, it was born out of a necessity to do better work. And the time investment that it took to do it was worth it. And I remember when John finished it, he said, I think, you know, we probably have about three years before technology catches up with us and everybody has one of these. Hmm. And he was pretty much spot on exactly right. Wow. Yeah. The one thing we never did was put all our eggs in the drone basket because we knew or we suspected that eventually this would be something that people just had for fun or it was just another tool in your kit. So we always promoted all the other stuff we did as well, which was a very good thing because when everybody got them, I mean, now it's just something we have, which we usually add on, but it's not special at all. And if that was all that we were making our name from, we wouldn't be in business. Hmm. Which ha- which happened to a number of people, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people got really into it, and I kept going, like, it's going to get easier and easier to fly these things, and the FAA will figure out what they need to with the rules. And then not only is every photographer going to have one, but every CEO and CEO's son is going to have one, and they're not going to pay money to have you do this. Because honestly, like the photo quality is really good on those. You know, you yeah. can't really make an argument for charging a ton more money just for that. In the beginning, we could. It was some of our best years when we had that drone because it was such a specialty item before everybody else did. But. And you traveled around the country with a drone. It was that special. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did a whole trip. It was from Florida to New Jersey for two weeks shooting solar installations all along the way for this one company with the drone. Yeah, it was way cool. It was really fun. That's incredible. And then did that bring about video? You were up in the air, you needed video, or was that more interior? And No, video came about because our clients started asking if we did it kind of just casually. And I felt like it's always tight when you're in this business. And we felt like we were leaving money we could use on the table. I was always just curious uh, as well, but enough of our cherished sort of repeat clients started asking about it that we felt like eventually they would be compelled to find somebody who did both. So we taught ourselves video. We did like a little film for John's friend in New Mexico who's a glider pilot. He runs a small glider pilot business. So we just went out there on our own dime and, and shot a little video of him. And that's how we learned what to do and what not to do, (laughs) you know? Um, And then we also, I think the key is we also edited it ourselves, which initially I hated editing. I thought it was so frustrating. And I I think that's because obviously through the editing, you learn all the stuff that you didn't shoot. So we practiced editing as well. And I've actually come to love editing. It's my favorite part now. Never, ever piss off your editor because you can make somebody sound brilliant or idiotic just by the way you arrange the clips. It's like post-production for me in stills, which I also really like, but it's where the final vision really comes together. Hmm. So we just started practicing hmm. and researching and doing some personal projects or, and then we just started charging. As soon as we had a couple of videos, we were proud of and we felt like we had the basic system down. And we just said, yeah, we do video. And now video is in a good year, in a non-coronavirus year, um, video is like, you know, around 75% of what we do. Wow. Yeah. So in each instance, you've seen a niche, taken advantage of it, not advantage, but pursued it, learned about it, done your research, technically. And practiced. And practiced and taken it on and made it part of your business. Yeah. And I think the key is, I mean, I think with the drone thing, we really lucked out because 
we happened upon that need for ourselves with a lot of time. I mean, I would have loved more time, but we had years to do that by ourselves before it became really popular. With the video, I actually, in hindsight, don't think we looked far enough ahead to see that coming. Like, I heard a little about it, I knew some people who were doing it, but I thought, eh. And it was only when our clients started asking. So it took us about six or eight months of concentrated practice to feel like we were confident enough to to start offering those services publicly. In hindsight, I would have liked to have thought about that and started planning for that a little bit earlier. But I just didn't, I didn't look that far enough ahead. Yeah. What's difficult, which I respect, neither of you saw it coming and then took your time and debated it. I mean, you stepped in to both things and took them on and learned it and got it to the point that you were able to introduce it to your clients at a, a level that you were happy with and they were happy with. That's a big step. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And I think that that actually is the way that it's just going to be for us from now on. You know, I wasn't a photographer in the time when in the, it was a much more steady and kind of comfortable time where you didn't necessarily have to be constantly learning new things every 10 seconds. So it's somewhat a part of the way that I run the business because I've always had to run it that way. Although I do find as I get older, it's harder and harder for me to adapt to all the, I'm like, oh God, what's this new app everybody wants content for? Oh geez, I don't even know what this is. So I have to like push myself to just embrace those things and, and take the time to learn them a little bit more than, you know, when I was in my twenties, but it has to be part of your business model now, you know, otherwise you, you won't survive. To that point, you've had a rather successful business model, but you recently stepped away from that history and turned what was a passion project into your new company or... Perhaps it's better to say a completely rebranded company called Buck the Cubicle, right? This is recently yep. created. And this is a huge risk. I mean, not only did you walk away from niches that had been successful, but you added another person to your team. Yeah. So what happened is our previous company, we had just hit 10 years in business and we had been starting to feel just like we were just kind of slogging away, you know, like not inspired, not really bored with where things were, but just not feeling that spark. I even in the back of my mind started thinking like what other career I might enjoy in my life. And at that time we had, we had a rep named Meredith who is now an actual part of our company. But at the time she was a rep, she was repping us and some other people. And she said, look, you should do a personal project because I need something. I need some more content to market you with. And you guys sound like you need a little creative juicy boost. So we came up with this personal project called Buck the Cubicle. It was as much for marketing as it was for us as sort of a, I don't know, a meditation, a soul see, soul searching thing. And so what we came up with was we were going to shoot short videos of people who were 100% dedicated and passionate to their projects or jobs, all of which would be considered odd by everybody. We just wanted to go hear why people do what they do, why they do what they love. So we did a bunch of those. We went all over the world. We were in the Arctic Circle. We were in New Mexico. We were everywhere. It was very, very popular. That really um, was surprising to us. But more so, at the end of it, we were kind of thinking like, okay, it feels like time to put the Buck the Cubicle project to, to bed for a while. And it was like, no, you know what? This is all we want to do. This is all we want to shoot. So we ended up working with a consultant because this is, I will say, a risk. I was not willing to take on my own. And I was also very worried about taking it because we had this comfortable thing, right? But we weren't happy with our comfortable thing. We hired um, Selena Maitreya to help us with it. And she basically just said, why don't you become Buck the Cubicle? That thought had crossed my mind kind of in my heart almost, but not in my logical thinking. Like there was no way I was going to dump my 10-year-old business that has provided for two people, you know, for a decade and go out and start this whole new thing. But 
as soon as she said it, I was like, of course, like, this is what I have to do. I have to do this. And and it, it was risky. So Meredith, John and I became partners in this new business. We got a new website, we filed new paperwork, we have a new logo. It's basically an entirely new business. We do have some of the same clients and we have all of our collective experience going for us. But it's something that the only way that I felt good about taking the risk was to have other people help me to make sure that I wasn't making stupid mistakes. Like it's not an adventure I would have taken on just myself and the two of us because we we wouldn't have been able to think through all the things we needed to decide. So now we're Buck the Cubicle. We're a couple years old. Okay. We're clear. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So Meredith is an executive producer. She was your rep, but she still does your marketing and negotiating and that kind of thing as well as production. And to make it clear, the early Buck the Cubicle work you did was video and still based, predominantly video based? Yeah, predominantly video. In the beginning, we tried to do video and stills because we were still, at that time, doing a lot more still photography than video. But it turned out to be too much of a time commitment for a lot of our subjects. Many were very kind enough to give us two days to shoot, which is a lot. But some of them could only give us one. And in, in that case, we were like, all right, we'll just do the video. So if there's video and stills available, it's because the subjects gave us longer time. And if not, then we just did video and we take a portrait for the poster frame. Okay. That's it. Well, the tagline on Buck the Cubicle is stories are a communal currency of humanity. So is that the foundation or the mantra of your business to a certain extent? It's a little more narrow than that. Ultimately, though, we are about authentic storytelling and we believe that storytelling is is a language we all speak and all can relate to. But Buck the Cubicle is focused primarily on storytelling for what's called purpose-driven brands. So those are companies, sometimes they're individual people, um, nonprofits, anybody that's doing something for good in the world beyond just making a profit. So for example, say like Patagonia, they do a lot with foundations and with environment and stuff like that. Part of their business mission is something beyond just, you know, making money. And so those are the people that we work for now. And that was also a big risky decision in a sense, because that cuts out. I mean, there are people that we will not work for. So we had to talk about that. We had to say, like, are we willing to turn certain brands away? Or if those brands, which notoriously don't have that purpose-driven direction, but they're trying and they have a certain part of their story that they want to tell that is truly purpose-driven and isn't just a marketing thing, let's talk about it. But yeah, there are people that will go to our companies that will go to our website and say like, oh my God, we, we would never work with them because they'll hate us, you know, or whatever. And we're okay with that. In essence, for your company, living what you're asking these other companies to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Absolutely. And it's an interesting market now. I mean, it's a lot of sustainability, but it's also climate justice and social justice. And, you know, so we try and also embody that because what we basically are doing is we need to fashion this company around our own personal beliefs and stories we really believe we want to tell because if we're going to keep going in this business, we better be doing what we love, yeah. you know, what we really care about. Well, that's our questions I hear from creatives all the time. How do I blend making with my belief system or doing something better in the world? make my career more satisfying in that sense. And what you're doing is pretty extraordinary. You gave a talk at the Sustainable Brands flagship conference, and you said, purpose-driven brands appeal to a consumer's heart. Integrity is the backbone of this type of storytelling. Stories about people who live the values you want to associate with your company. So you're not always talking about just doing a video about the company or the CEO or the consumer. Sometimes you're talking about doing a story about an ans someone ancillary or person in the world who represents those ideals? 
Yeah, a lot of it is that actually one of the main things that we have to explain to these companies, because a lot of these companies are still trying to figure out how they tell these stories and how are stories like this different than traditional advertising, right? And there's a big difference, I think. And the biggest part of it is that people who believe in these causes are putting their whole heart into them and you don't mess with that, right? So what you're telling, you have to use real people. You have to tell the story honestly. It's okay to admit times when you failed and talk about challenges you haven't not yet met. I mean, that's what breeds loyalty from the people who really want this change, these changes to happen in the world. So a lot of times we'll tell stories about maybe an employee that's doing something. Maybe they volunteer overseas on their vacation. Or maybe it's somebody who has benefited from a product that the company makes, like genuinely benefited, or from their foundation. So a lot of times it is not about the company itself or the CEO itself. It's an individual story about a real human. And how do you create a narrative that makes a company relatable to their audience? It's got to be honest. I'll say this too. It also depends on your style. Like we have a certain style, the way that we shoot. It's not the same as everybody's and it's not for every company, but for us, it has to be honest. So that can be uh, what you're talking about, of course, the content, right? But it can also be like, and you'll see in a lot of our videos, you can see the microphone or part of it has people laughing or joking with each other, like real emotion, real humanity. You put that in the video. So super clean and polished, using models or actors instead of real people. That's not what we're good at. And that's not what believe works for this type of storytelling. So it's authenticity, it's honesty, it's emotion, and it's just, it's relatability, basically. So it's less broadcast and more conversation. Okay. And you said during your talk that you blend the intellectual with the emotional with authenticity. Right. So a lot of companies want to give a lot of detailed technical information about what they're doing. For example, in the solar industry, you have to put in there oh, it's this many megawatts and it covers this many acres. There's a fine line where you lose your general audience when you're doing that sort of thing. So we try really hard to blend relatable emotional moments with actual information, because if it's all information, people are going to tune out. And if it's all emotional, then it doesn't have any substance. So you have to find that line between the relatability part, like I said, which is the emotional part. Maybe somebody's crying, maybe somebody's laughing, maybe somebody's admitting mistakes that they made. And then you mix that in with information, but it's never as much information as people want to cram in a short video. It's always too much information. So then we recommend more than one video, basically, because attention span is short. And that's part of the secret, too, is kind of narrowing it down to, what, two, three things in each video? Yeah, exactly. People can consume? Yeah. People say, oh, we want to do this 10-minute video. And it's like, they really want a two-minute video. They just think two minutes is 10 minutes. That's the conversation that Meredith has a lot is, okay, like... We look up stats and we look up stuff that we can tell them. Like, you know, the average viewer's time they spend watching these is two to three minutes. That's your sweet spot. Ten minutes, maybe that's for internal or for something different. But if you're putting this on, you know, YouTube, no one's going to watch ten minutes of this. That's part of what they work with us on and what they hire us for is that sort of stuff. Helping craft their story. Yeah. Well, and it's true. I mean, people just aren't going to be engaged for ten minutes, even if it's gorgeous. No. You also talked about the magic of B-roll and the importance of B-roll, yeah. which I, I love. Yes. That, that's the other thing is, yeah, talking heads. I think there's better ways to show people. Like, I think the talking head, you know, the shot of the guy in the interview chair is essentially meant to establish who's talking, right? We tend to use B-roll for that. So the guy might be talking, you know, voiceover and you show him laughing or you show him walking through the field or whatever. Like, we're much more, I don't know what the term is. 
casual with that sort of thing. It's not your standard, like in the video, you need to have the interview and then the B-roll and then the close-up and then the second shot of the interview. It flows differently than that for us, which seems to attract people. A lot of times there's too many talking heads or people want too many talking heads. Do you need to sell the clients on not having people talking into the camera? Do you need to sell them on that narrative? No, what we need to sell them on is that they're all about the B-roll and not talking to the camera, but they don't understand that more B-roll takes more time. Okay. So it's always like, okay, if you want really good B-roll, we need an extra two or three days because we can only be here at this time and blah, 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 blah. So selling them, and this is true for stills too. I mean, selling people on the time it takes is one of our most common conversations for the B-roll, especially for video. Okay. Is, is time. A lot of people ask me about writing books and doing a photo book and how to do that. But you had one of your personal projects lead to a book. What was that? Yeah. So we did a, one of the Buck the Cubicle personal projects before we became Buck the Cubicle, the company. It went very viral. It's about a guy in New Mexico who makes Doradango, these Japanese mud balls. They're extraordinarily beautiful. I know it sounds ridiculous, but they're like astounding. They're gorgeous. And he experiments with all these different types of clay. And he's been doing it for a really long time. So he was one of our subjects. And that video went everywhere, like millions and millions and millions of views. He was on like Japanese reality TV because of it. And it was hysterical. Anyway, Lawrence King Publishing found him and asked him to write. It's a how-to book, but it also incorporates a lot of philosophy of practice, practicing a hobby, meditation, you know, whatever it is you do to kind of keep yourself on a straight path. And they said that they wanted us to do the photography because we had done the original photography. So we were hired to do that directly out of the personal project. It's amazing. Yeah, it was really fun. We got to go back and shoot more stuff with him and we all laughed about how weird it was. I mean, I just found the guy on the internet, you know, and now we're, we're great friends. We see him every time we're in New Mexico. So that's a really beautiful thing about those personal projects. When you reach out to people and you think, oh, these guys are never going to want to invest this time. And they do. And then they stay friends. And we've just met some incredible people in the world that way. Which is beautiful on its own. You have this extraordinary network of amazing people around the world. Yep. Doing really crazy odd things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, find your tribe. Um, <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So... How have you evolved personally and professionally over the course of your career? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, personally, I'll start there because that's almost easier. When I first started out, I was very shy. I lacked confidence. I was terrified of shooting people. And it took me a really long time to, to get my patter down, to feel comfortable and actually enjoy working with people and even to enjoy setting up my lights and figuring out how I was going to do shoots in front of clients. That took a really long time. And I was thinking, you know, oh, in a couple of years, I'll feel comfortable, whatever. It actually took more like six or seven years, Wow. especially with people before I really was like, oh, look, I just had a lot of fun instead of like sweating it out like crazy, you know? Uh, personally, that was a really big hurdle. And then I think also I somehow got it in my head that I just didn't know how to light. That took a long time where I finally now feel like it was just really getting over my own barrier that I put up for myself, which I don't know where it came from, but it was not true. So, hmm. and then professionally, it's really just been maintaining a style, but then also having the ability to play around with that style and feel comfortable changing it if you want. That's really where the growth pattern was. And then learning new different things. So the video, you know, oh, now I'm going to do Instagram or now I'm going to try this or now I'm going to try 
public speaking, things like that, which advance your career in these different ways. That's really where that trajectory has, has gone. Did your ability to storytell evolve over your career as well? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I'm sure, I'm sure it did. I mean, I'm not even sure I had the ability to really storytell in the beginning the way that we do now. So yeah, I would say yes. I'm looking back on that. And that really happened a lot too with video. Like once we started doing video, it's a whole different way to tell a story. And it, it actually really informed our still work a lot. I think video, it was also very, it was difficult for me in the beginning to figure out what are the parts of the story that are important and what are the parts that aren't. That took a long time to work through. And it actually did really help with the still image because you're basically just, you're telling the whole story in one picture. So our still work changed quite a bit after we started doing a lot more video. Was it more considered? Yeah, it was more considered. Although the interesting thing, I think, I mean, you're sort of making me look back on this like retrospectively is that it wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious consideration. It just became more considered as we developed. Okay. And what is one thing that you've learned along the way? Oh my gosh, only one, (laughs) one thing. Oh, this is hard. One thing. I don't want to say all the ones that everybody else is probably saying or thinking. <laughs> like, just keep pushing. Just go for it. Um, one thing. Well, embracing failure. I know that people say that a lot, but you have to be comfortable with failing. And not only failing, but taking a look at why you failed and then being okay with it so that you can move on. Because failure is the biggest educator and it's really one of the most valuable tools we have i think so being unafraid to fail would be one thing that i've learned that's great i would agree completely okay and what personal characteristic do you most attribute your success to stubbornness (laughs) Um, i mean really in a way it was just like i was going to do this i was going to do this career and i was not going to fail i was not going to fail at it to the point where i wanted to do something else. And so it just, there were really hard times and, and really good times. And I just kept chipping away at the, at the block. And if you chip away long enough and you do it with consideration, then you end up getting somewhere. That's great. One last question. What advice would you give to someone who has a desire to step out on a new career path or who would like to create a career based on the things they love and believe in? That's a good question. What I would say is do it, first of all. I think it's, it's incredibly rewarding and it will continue to be rewarding as you progress. I would also say don't expect it to happen overnight. For me, it's happened in two different ways. The first way was kind of a natural progression to finding where I wanted to be. That was when we were doing the solar stuff and figuring all that out. And the second way was a calculated risk that we took. But I stress the word calculated there. We researched and planned and thought about we don't have business for the year because we're transitioning to this new company. You know, what is that going to look like for us? Get some help if you need it. Investigate a little bit ahead of time, but don't wait too long. It's kind of that fine line. I mean, really, I think going with your gut is if this is what you know you should do, you'll make it happen. But don't walk into it unprepared. Thanks, Jenna. Appreciate your being here. Yeah. And... Your oh, path and personal perspective is inspiring, no doubt. Always has been. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope that you join us next time on Thomas Werner Podcast.